welcome, my friends, to Scry Me River, the MTG Advice Podcast. I'm Riley, and Dennis isn't here. He is gallivanting across the United States of America and didn't take his microphone with him. So rather, we're sparing you from scratchy laptop microphone audio, and instead, it's just the honeyed baritone of your favourite Scry Me River host anyway. Um, Dennis will be back next week. Don't even worry about that. Uh, in the meantime, please do send in questions, queries, and quandaries that you have for next week's episode. And of course, Power Moves will be taking a brief, uh, a brief sojourn from all of that nonsense this week, so I can indulge in some disgusting self-indulgence. I guess that's how indulgent it is. It's double indulgent. I'm indulging in self-indulgence, and we're going to have an AMA. Um, I did, I did an episode, uh, and it wasn't an episode, it was an article. I did an article. A couple of years ago, sort of a, a mailbag article, and so I thought I'd do the same thing here for this um, for this podcast. It's also it's also helpful because I get asked a lot of the same questions a lot of the time, um, and so uh, it's handy to be able to say, "Well, listen, to the, go, go and listen to the the popular internet radio program, Scrum Your River," and you'll be able to uh, you find it all about that. Of course, before we get to that, it's time for the ad for Channel Five dot com. Look at that! Put in the Arena Boys video uh, music. Don't even worry about that. Uh, channel5.com, uh, I want to tell you about the buy list on CFB, and this isn't just because, you know, I've got an email telling me that I need to push the buy list this week. Uh, that's uh, beside the point entirely. Um, the buy list is, is, in all seriousness, a fantastic way to get rid of your cards. If you don't want them, you know, I mean, everyone's been through this, right? You, you start You start your magic career by, you know, happily absorbing all the draft chaff that no one wants at your LGS and then you end up with too many cards and you don't want any of them and Channel 5 will here to fix that problem for you. Um when you sell them to CFB, the if you haven't used the buy list before, it's actually it's 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 very straightforward and it's very simple. Channel5.com slash buy list, create an account there, then you basically put all of the cards that you want to sell into a reverse shopping basket, a selling basket, right? Um they'll tell you how much you're gonna get for them. Uh, and you add your cards to this list just like you would when you, you know, as, like you would when you're shopping for cards, except it's obviously the, the reverse. Uh, complete the checkout, you hit submit, right? You send over your cards, you pack them all up like that, send them to CFB. They, uh, will go through them, check that they're all there, check that they're in conditions that match the, the money that they're giving you, and they'll, and you'll receive payment as soon as they do that. It, it happens very, very quickly indeed. Um, they, CFB will grade your cards on the same level as, as what they sell them. So if you send them in, you know, near mint card, they're going to sell for that, they're going to give you the near mint price. Um, and you're going to get, uh, you're going to get the money paid through very, very quickly indeed. Uh, you can either get a, a check, we can get a PayPal, or if you just if you want to again turn your colourful bits of cardboard into better bits of colourful cardboard, thirty percent store credit bonus. You're going to get money very very quickly as well. Channelfiber.com slash buy list. Go and do that. I'm in the process of um of, of doing exactly this. Although I'm going to uh, rather than hold rather than ship this is the this is the other thing rather than ship it across the Atlantic. I'm actually going to hand in my cards physically at a uh, at a Magic Fest event at a Grand Prix. You can actually go to the uh, um, go to the the booth there, and I'm told I don't actually know if I'm I don't know if this is true or not, but I'm told that if if you do it at the uh, at at Magic Fests, you actually get a better price than than what the online buy list because they're keen to you know it obviously just obviates the need for postage and and fiddly farting around with all that sort of stuff. So I'm going to go and do that. I advise you to do the same thing. Uh, tell them I sent you as well, so you know they know they know where the uh, those those good good cards are coming from. People of great taste from fine listening to Scrimy River. Um, but that's it. Do that, please, because it looks good for the numbers. Anyway, let's get into the AMA. Thank you to all the people who have sent in questions this week. Uh, did get it just just an absolute ton of them, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, to getting stuck into them here. 
Uh, we're going to uh, we're going to break it up very simply here into three three different topics. We've got magic questions, we've got non magic questions, and then we've got some quicker ones that I thought I so, you know the 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 speed round at the end there that I thought I'd, I'd wrap up wrap up the podcast with the questions that are only going to be a couple of sentences long to answer. So thank you again to all the people who asked questions. I, I think I got across all the questions that were answered. We're gonna I'm going to answer all oh, uh, that were asked. Sorry, I'm going to answer all of them here. Uh, but let's get to it. Here we go. I'm getting underway uh, with question question number one. Question number one, my friends, comes in from. Mikna Ward, who asks, what colours do you prefer in Magic? And this is an interesting interesting question because it has changed for me over the last year. I used to be a rusted-on white-blue mage. I used to enjoy Counterspells and Wraths and all, all, the, all the sort of cards that you see in the, uh, you know, in, in the deck that won Worlds, PV's, uh, PV's white-blue deck. Uh, is, is just exactly the kind of deck that I used to love playing. Elspeth Sun's Champion years ago, Sphinx of Revelation, whatever else like that. But at some point in the last... Yeah, year or so. I don't know exactly when it happened, but I just stopped enjoying that kind of magic. I stopped enjoying playing reactive, slow magic where, you know, you're, you're responding to what your opponent's doing. And I enjoyed much more playing on the front foot. Whenever I drafted ramp, de- or drafted cube decks, I'd always draft ramp. I love playing, I loved, always loved playing big green idiots. And once I started playing them in standard and modern and that sort of thing, I discovered I really had a taste for it. I, I feel like, to be honest, to be like, to be actually painfully honest about this, I feel like I I feel like I kind of adopted white blue as the colors I enjoyed because you know that's what you're supposed to do like that's what all the you know the the best players in magic all play blue and they're their favorite you know the favorite colors colors to play interactive counter magic all that sort of stuff but I actually I just really like putting big green idiots into play and so the as for actual colors I guess green or well, definitely green green's definitely my favorite color in magic now but paired with, I don't know, like I enjoy Bant decks. I enjoy Gruul decks a lot. I don't like the philosophy of Gruul very much. It doesn't resonate with me on a philosophical level. But I definitely like attacking with, you know, enormous big dragons and, and, and big monsters and primeval titans and all that sort of stuff. So Gruul decks, uh, I, I guess my probably my least favorite color is black. I don't like um, Thought Seize type effects. Uh, I'm not really into the sort of, you know, uh, what is it? Greatness at any cost, that sort of stuff. I'd rather not pay life to draw my cards. So I'd say in order, I mean, green's definitely my favorite. And then the Jeskai colors sort of to come on just under that. And then black, uh, least favorite. So I guess if I had to, if I had to say it, no, I mean, look, look, my, my, my favorite commander deck is all the colors, but black. It's, it's, uh, it's Tyrion, uh, Kanaz and Tyrion of Miletus. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I, <laughs> that's, that's what I do. So. Um, those four colors, I guess, but definitely, definitely base green, green. I like green the most for sure now. Anyway, next question. And I see exactly what's happening here. Matei Zadalkai asks, and I know, I know exactly what Matei is doing. Matei asks, which event as a caster did you enjoy the most? Now, for those of you who don't know, Matei, uh, Big Z as he's known, Large Z is, uh, is one of my oldest, one of my most favorite, um, coverage colleagues. I've been working with him for years now, nearly six years. And I wonder if this is, you know, I wonder if this is a question. So I'll turn around and say, oh, it was definitely, definitely players to a Brussels where I, you know, was paired with him all weekend. It was definitely a GP in Madrid years ago. Was it Barcelona? I think it was Madrid. No, it was Barcelona. Uh, in, in Barcelona years and years ago where I paired, was paired with him. No. Um, sorry, sorry, Matei. I have two, two weekends that stand out, uh, as a caster. One was as a caster and one was more as a friend. Uh, my favorite, of course, magic weekend of all time was obviously, uh, Mythic Championship in Barcelona, where Toffle won, but I didn't the, like the, my enjoyment of that weekend wasn't so much as a caster, but just as you know, one of the best mates of the of the bloke who won the whole thing. My favourite moment as a caster was definitely uh, casting the 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 win of Gary Campbell, 
who won GP Birmingham a couple of years ago. Uh, we had the it was a it was a, it was a double weekend, a double GP weekend. So all of the people who had come to you know to play in the first GP were there supporting Gary as he won on the Saturday. So it was a huge crowd. The energy was incredible. Gary uh, was the oldest person to ever win a GP. He may still hold that title. I don't know if he's been overtaken. Uh, but just to see this bloke who has a heart of gold, backbone of the community in Scotland, uh, absolutely deserving win in legacy, you know, as a bloke who's lent out thousands and thousands of dollars worth of cards over the years to, uh, to other people wanting to play, you know, formats like legacy it was, it, it was an incredible moment. You can go and, you can go and watch the, the video. It was just, it was just, it was phenomenal. So yeah, uh, by, by a long way, I'm so sorry, Matei, that you weren't, but I think it was Rafa who was in the booth for me for that one. But, um, yeah, def- definitely GP Birmingham as a caster was, uh, was my favorite event because it was just, it was just, the energy was just incredible on that evening. Anyway, Philip Mead asks a, a question that runs along kind of similar lines here. Do you enjoy doing more live coverage or pre-recorded content? I actually have a think about this one because I don't want to really give the cop-out answer of, oh, you know, I love all my children equally because, you know, that's not true of anyone. Every, every parent has a favorite child, of course, in my family. It's definitely my sister. We all we all know that. Or maybe my brother. Whatever it is, it's definitely not me. Anyway, um, Philip Mead, do I enjoy live coverage or pre-recorded content? I think I think it's live, but not by like by by an absolute you know by an absolute hair it's not by very much at all i really enjoy making my own content i enjoy editing i I like the editing process i enjoy going through and you know making stuff the best it can be with uh you know again post-production whatever else but i think i think live content live coverage is just it's it's incomparable to anything else the energy at some events the the drama that you get the excitement all of that sort of stuff the fact that you know it's it's not it's not scripted you don't have as much control over it um and you know if it's a fun exciting event then there's a lot to get across there's a lot to talk about a lot of stuff to uh, you know to to get viewers excited about and if it's slow and boring then you can just sit there and you know talk nonsense like i did with caleb during the uh, during the slower pioneer matches in um in uh, in phoenix that was a lot of fun so uh, I'd say again, it's very, very close. But I think if I like, I, if I put it this way, if I had to give up one forever, I think it would be pre-recorded content because uh, live live coverage is uh, is is yeah, it's just the best. I mean, it's it's just yeah, it's what I've it's all I want in life is an audience and and being able to do live coverage uh, for for Magic is uh, is just incredible. Anyway, Ryan Hall writes in with uh, with three questions here. It's a little bit of a three for one here for old Ryan. Uh, do you have a favorite competitive format to play and uh, and which deck would you play in it? And I would definitely say it's modern. I know that this isn't a, uh, a you know a, a very fashionable opinion amongst the the games elite. A lot of a lot of the best players in the world don't like modern as a competitive format. I don't, I understand why. The you know the, the limitation on sideboard space when in modern when you've got to fight off twenty or so decks and you've only got fifteen sideboard slots to do it is is really challenging and. You know, a lot of players don't enjoy... I mean, I know that this is a, an out-of-date example now with the Banning of Mox Opal, but for example, a lot of people didn't like playing against decks like Affinity uh, because, you know, the game, the match basically comes down to how many copies of Stony Silence do you draw. I get that, but I mean, as a competitive format, I can't go past Modern. I love playing Scapeshift in Modern. Very, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a dumb deck for dumb people, and that's why, I love <laughs> that's why I love it so much. I get a lot of flack for saying that. I don't think any of the people understand that whenever I'm, you know potting scapeshift players as being idiots i'm definitely having a go at myself before anything else like that it's just a nice easy simple deck to play it's powerful proactive and and streamlined and also you get to play primeval titan and my favorite card in magic which we'll come to in a minute uh so yeah i'd say modern although pioneer is giving it a good run for its money i do enjoy i enjoy pioneer as well next question from ryan do you prefer foil or non-foil and if foil pack foil promo or explicitly decide based on art i do not like foils 
I made the mistake of deciding that I liked foils when I was building a cube, and now I can't get rid of them. I need to sell <laughs> need to sell them to channelfire.com. I, I don't, man, I don't even know if they do buy foils. They definitely don't buy foreign foils, and I've got a lot of them. Don't buy foil. I mean, if you like foils, good on you. But if you if you know, don't be foil guy if you're just doing it for the sake of it. Uh, foils are such a pain in the bum after a while. Um, and if foil pack promo explicitly decide based on that, no, just nah, just non foil, non foil English cards. Keep it, keep it simple, keep it as simple as possible. Uh, the final question from Ryan Hall: Do you sleeve? Yes, Ryan, I do. You know, unlike <laughs> unlike most magic, no, of course everyone sleeves there. Everyone sleeves their cards. Double, triple, no, not quite. Um, uh, and then what type of sleeves? I use. I think it's KMCs. I bought like two thousand of them at one point, and so I'm still working my way through all those spare, um, all those spare uh, packs of sleeves that I still haven't busted open. I think I think it's KMC mats. They're okay. They're fine. I, I'd probably buy something different these days. They get they're a bit sticky after a while. They don't sort of slide. I think some of the some of the mat sleeves that slide into each. No, no, I don't have mat sleeves. That's a problem. They don't slide very well. So um, you know, shuffling them after a while is a bit of a pain in the bum. But I've got too many of them, to, and and they're all identical. All of my sleeves are identical, so I don't have to worry about you know fiddly fighting around with different sleeves or different decks or anything else like that i know some people have like commander decks sleeved in different colors and not and anybody got time for that i'm not i'm not into that anyway i hope that was useful information for someone do, do you sleeve your decks in something uh, ryan hall asked I hope someone enjoyed the answer to that question other than ryan oh, well otherwise ryan you got you got the answer that you uh, that you wanted there anyway we'll keep going here next question comes from joel carlquist and joel asks fun and competitiveness in magic for you and i would say that it is almost entirely all fun and not very much competitiveness i don't look i don't know if i made a good decision when i made this decision but years ago once i got entrenched into coverage i decided not to pursue being competitive with magic uh i decided that you know i'd sort of hit the 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 the, my skill cap and then I, I didn't really want to try to get any better. And maybe that's silly. Maybe that's, you know, that was silly to leave that behind. But I just don't get very much out of, you know, winning, I suppose, which is good because I don't do a lot of it. No, I mean, if you've watched Arena Boys, if you've watched, you know, Channel Firebrawl, that sort of stuff, much more interested in having a, a fun game where, you know, you get to do something silly. Um, and com- I don't know, being competitive, it just doesn't really, it doesn't really do much for me. I don't mind playing competitive magic, I played a couple of GPs here and there. And, you know, and it is good fun, but it's definitely not my, definitely not my preferred uh, take on the game so no the optimal distribution i would say probably 90 percent fun 80 percent fun or 10 and 10 to 20 percent competitiveness um yeah I, I, winning is a lot less important to me than, than having having a good time and, and you know that's handy because i don't my magic career is not based on winning games of magic which uh which is quite lucky so uh yeah i, I definitely prefer i definitely prefer having fun and i think it's the mark of a good game not just with magic but any game at all i think it's the mark of a good game if you're losing and still having a good time, you know, if you're if you're not winning and still having fun, then obviously the game is doing something right. Anyway, Anton Clement, super fan. Uh, Anton's been uh, been with me for a long, long time now. Is uh, always always contributing questions or comments or anything like that with uh, with stuff that I've done so much. So thanks so much, Anton, and everyone else who who's been supporting me over the years. But Anton, Anton's name definitely sticks out as a as a, as a really nice super fan. So good on you, Anton. You got great taste. Uh, a bunch of questions from him as well. Three of them here. Number one, coolest commander deck you have ever encountered. Well, this is not close. It is Rashad Miller's Astral Slide deck. So Rashad has a five color. I don't know who his commander is at the moment. I think it was, it was Child of Alara for a while, but it might just be Golos now. I'm not sure actually. I, I, I think he changed it. I can't remember. Anyway, um, so it's an Astral Slide deck. 
It plays nothing that costs uh, three or less except for Astral Slide, and then it plays a bunch of Cascade cards to cheat out the Astral Slide, and then, of course, a bunch of cycling cards to flicker anything and everything, attackers, blockers, into the battlefield, triggers on his stuff. It's just, it's ridiculous. It's busted in half. It's unbeatable. I hate it so much, and it is the coolest commander deck I've ever come across, and it's not close. Uh, I don't know if Rashad's ever put the list out. I've ne- It's absolutely unique. I've never seen anyone play this list uh, apart from him. He may want to hide his tech, but I can tell you that, yeah, Astral Slide, a bunch of cycling cards, uh, and cascading into, into Astral Slide itself. So, so, so cool. Such a sweet deck. Anyway, uh, number two person that you want to be in the booth but haven't got the chance to yet. I've talked about Paul Rietzel before. I think Paul Rietzel is one of the best broadcasters in Magic. I know that he's sort of, you know, he doesn't do a lot of it compared to a lot of the other Magic broadcasters, but whenever whenever he's broadcasting, I just cannot get enough. And, I, and I've said it before, I'll say it again, the reason why. He has the ability to distill incredibly complex ideas, incredibly complex information about board state or or even just general philosophies when it comes to magic comes to magic and, and repackage it into ways that, you know, an idiot like me can understand. He's he the the way that he is able to take something that's very complicated, very in depth and, and, and repackage it, distill it into a form that, you know, the average magic viewer is easily able to comprehend is is an absolute gift and i don't know if there's anyone you know i guess luis is also very good at this um there are a lot of high, you know high level magic players who are completely unable to express their their understanding of the game in layman's terms but uh, you know paul reitz or luis got vargas these are the people who can do it and i'd love to work with paul i'd love to work with paul. i never i've never i never have before and i'd lo- i'd love to get the opportunity to so uh Paul Rietzel, let's make it happen, mate. The big collab, let's uh, let's make it happen. And uh, the third question from Anton is a personal pet card, and this is going to be a rather boring one. It's just my favorite card of all time, and it's Farseek. I love Farseek. Uh, Farseek was in the deck uh, that I won a WMCQ to get me get this whole my magic career kicked off, uh, and I play it whenever I can. Obviously, in Scapeshift, in all my commander decks, I automatically include Farseek. I just love this card so much because I think it's just everything that I want to do. I want to play dumb decks that branch into different colors. Uh, I want to ramp early and, you know, and, and, and get and, you know, fix my colors by going and f- fetching you know, a sacred foundry with, uh, with my Farseek and whatever else I like that. So, yeah, Farseek, not close. Love that card. Personal pet card. I'll play it in every, every green deck that, it, that it'll possibly fit into. And I, I wish Wizards would reprint it. Give us back Farseek. Give us rampant growth. You cowards. Wizard. R and D. Give us, give, give the people what they want. Give us a two mana ramp spell again instead of this, you know, beanstalk giant nonsense although you know i'm happy to have beanstalk giant i'm not i'll complain don't take beanstalk giant away from me but do give us just just andrew brown print print bloody farseek again mate come on come on everyone at andrew brown to give us i know he's in play design i know he doesn't actually you know he doesn't actually you know start the cards from i guess just mark rosewater let's just at mark rosewater until we until we get farseek back all right that's that's the homework for this week anyway Next question comes from Felix Thomas. This one's going to be a quick one. Have you ever made a commander deck so powerful that no one wants to play against it? No, I have not. <laughs> no, I have not. Although in my Blink deck, I did put Kiki Jiki into it um, as a uh, because I did have Restoration Angel in there as well. So it was a sort of, you know, break glass in case of emergency, win the game on the spot there. But, oh, Larry started complaining. Oh, the guy who plays Titania and all these other nasty decks. Oh, it's too much for him. And so I had to take it out. Um and so, no, no, all of my, all of my, none of my commander decks are hugely competitive. In fact, most of them are the exact opposite. So I've, I've never made a commander deck that's so powerful that no one wants to play against it. No. So sorry. Sorry, Felix, if you're wanting a, uh, an in-depth answer to that one. But no, the, the simple answer is, uh, is no, I have not. 
Next question comes uh, comes to us from Hispanicus at the Disco, which I quite like. That's a very good name. Who do you think is the hardest commander to build around out of those you have seen? And uh, this is a good question, and I, I had to think about it for a while because I think, you know, I could cop out and say, oh, you know, some weird legend from legends or portal or something else like that but i think i think we're actually talking about like you know quote-unquote real commanders and for that reason i'd say zedru the great-hearted i bought i I built i bought and built a zedru deck and you know all that was about donating useless permanents to people whether it's you know a blue ring or whatever else um but i didn't enjoy it and it never and i took it apart after about five games, I just never, it never did anything that was fun. My Zedra would always get killed. I'd never get to draw any extra cards. And I just felt stupid for playing it. So if anyone's got a hot Zedra list, let me know. Cause I think I've still got most of the cards and you know, I, if there's something I'm missing with it, but no, I just, I never found that it came together. It was just, I don't know if I was missing something or what, but Zedra the Great Hearted, I just never, I never seemed to be able to crack that puzzle. So that, that Hispanic at the Disco, <laughs> that's, a very, oh, that's a very good Twitter name. Um, yeah, just ne- never able to crack the case on uh, on Old Maid Zedra there. Anyway, this one, also a great Twitter name, probably even better than Hispanic at the Disco. A camel on the internet asks, what got you into magic? Well, a camel on the internet. I don't know how you were able to type that question out with your, with your hooves, but uh, wait, do camels have hooves? What does a camel have? Do camels have hooves? They don't have hooves. No, it's made the the foot of a camel is made of a, of a large leathery pad with two with two toes at the front, uh, the bones of which are embedded in the foot. So the pad, ooh, the padding makes the camel uh, the gait of a camel silent, and it keeps it from sinking into the sand. Nature's assassins, the camel. I mean, I've never. I, that's why you never hear them sneaking up on you, do you? When was the last time you heard a, a camel sneaking up on you? Exactly. The gate is silent. You can't hear them. All right. Well, a camel on the internet with uh, with your silent typing skills. What got me into magic? I've told this story before. I'll tell it again very quickly. I know. I know a lot of people may have uh, may have already heard this. On I, I think I told it on the humans and magic thing I did with James Sue uh, many months ago. Uh, what got me into magic was I was studying sound production. I used to I used to be in a band and I, I wanted to learn how to you know record music convincingly. So I, I was doing a I was doing a, a sound production course. And I met a bunch of boys there who who were all into magic, and they invited me to come and play with them. And I did, and you know, using their decks. And and they were like, "Oh, you know, you should get some cards. You should build a deck yourself." And I'm like, "No, nah, no, nah, not going to do it, because if I do, that's it, game over." I know what I'm like. I know how you know how deep I go on on stuff like this. I I knew that if I started playing magic, that would be it, and I wouldn't be able to do anything else. And then they forced the issue by uh, just buying me the Psychosis Crawler Blue Black. Uh, Scars of Mirrodin or Mirrodin Besieged or whatever it was uh, intro deck and seven years later here we are so yeah oops uh, that was that uh, never no what eight years almost almost eight years it's been wow that's a long time um, yeah never never was able to re- quite recover from that they uh, they bought me that intro pack and uh, and and that was all she wrote uh, I guess I knew what was going to happen I knew when I started playing it that if I got into it I would you know drop out of my course and put everything on hold to start playing magic and and that's kind of what happened in venice i did finish a different course i did i did do a teaching course but i dropped out of the sound production course i started playing you know fnms and thursday night standards and all that sort of stuff they like that and, and and went enormously deep those boys i think they got into commander a bit later on but they never went as deep they never really got into it as fully as uh, as i ended up uh, getting into it. i wonder how they're all going ryan and ben and pj and james and all the rest of them i hope, I hope they're doing well and um 
you know, thank you, I guess, for you know setting my course, my the, the course of my life down on this uh, off on this off this zag that I never I never anticipated. Uh, but yeah, what got me into magic was just me- meeting some boys at a in a course that I was um, that I was doing who who got me into it, sort of forced the issue by buying me a deck, and uh, and that was that, as I say. The next question, uh, as we move now into the non magic questions, this question comes from Lava Spike. And uh, it is related to the question that was asked by a camel on the internet because Lava Spike asks now as we head into the non-magic questions, what would you be doing now if you had never gotten into magic in the first place? And I think what would have happened if, you know, James hadn't gone and bought me that Psychosis Crawler deck, if I had stuck to my guns and just said, no, look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to follow through and I'm not going to get into magic, I'm going to stay the course, where would I be? I'd like to say that I would be a rock star, <laughs> that the band that I was in would have taken off and uh, gone, but no, probably not. I mean, magic definitely helped me. It, it definitely it was a catalyst for the, you know, the the um, the disbandment, I suppose you could say, of my band. It was definitely something that sped the process along. Um, but it was not the only reason. You know, the drummer wasn't turning up to rehearsal. The lead guitarist and the bassist were off playing in another band. And uh, it, yeah, the writing was kind of on the wall. So I'd like to say I would, be, I would have been a rock star, but probably not. What I probably would just be doing is, is just just teaching back in Australia, probably somewhere, probably you know, just primary school teacher because that was what I ended up studying after I finished after I, I dropped out of the uh, the sound production course. Um, probably like grade three. That was always the that was always the the year level that I enjoyed. I don't know D and D on the weekends, hanging out with my mates, playing video games. Yeah, I don't know. I, it's it's an interesting thing to think about, you know. The, the me getting into magic, such a sliding doors moment for you know, in in how much it took off and and changed the way that I live my life. And you know, I've travelled the world, lived in different places around the world, all that sort of stuff, just because of this uh, this card game. And I don't know. I don't. I never thought that. Um, I never. I never anticipated that. You know, this would happen to me. I never thought that. You know, this would this would become what my life was about. But I'd like to think that. You know. Even if it didn't happen, I'd, I'd probably still be very happy. Teaching kids is something, you know, a great, great passion of mine. I always enjoyed it. I want to go back to it eventually. Um, and uh, this actually brings us to the next question here. I hope that's a good enough answer, Love Spike. What would I be doing? I'd, yeah, probably just be teaching in, in a regular Australian primary school and, you know, playing a bit of D&D on the weekends with my mates and, yeah, just having a ordinary, boring life, I guess. Um, but this does kind of bring us to the next question. Peter Meisels asks... What is your teaching philosophy? Give an example of one of your most impactful and effective lessons you gave while teaching. This sounds a little bit like a like a question from a job interview, but uh, I can answer this question pretty easily. What was my teaching philosophy? I was actually not a very good teacher, to be honest. I was I was not a very good teacher at all. I was a, I was a very good babysitter though. My kids loved me. The kids, well, actually, I taught grade three and they loved me, and then I taught grade six and they thought I was enormously lame, which was fair enough because I probably was, but um. Teaching grade three, it was the best because my philosophy was the kids are there to have fun. The three priorities I had with teaching, there was in this order, in one, two, and three, number one was safety. Obviously, safety is more important than anything else when you're dealing with, you know, the lives of eight-year-olds and whatever else. These, you know, parents are entrusting literally the most important things in their life to you as a, as a, as a teacher, you know, as a, as a, as a temporary guardian, guardian of these children. So the sa- their safety is absolutely paramount and beats, beats out anything else. But number two is not learning. Number two is fun. And number three is learning. So it's safety, fun, and then learning. If the kids left my classroom at the end of the day with a smile on their face, I considered 
them. I, I considered myself to have done my job that day. And if they learned something, well, that's that was a nice bonus. I, you know, I have many incredibly, incredibly pleasant memories from my childhood. And all I wanted to do was give these kids a year of just joy, just having having a great time with with a teacher who who hadn't quite forgotten what it was like to be a kid. You know, and that's not to say that I didn't teach them anything. Like we'd, you know, we did all the stuff that you had to do. We'd cover off the syllabus and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, it involved reading a lot of stories. It meant singing. It meant going outside and playing or doing lessons outside in the park or, you know, physical demonstrations of, 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 of concepts and principles or just idea. Like the time that to show how big the solar system was, we unrolled an entire roll of toilet paper down the corridor and drew the planets on it, which the kids thought was both very funny and a lot of fun. But probably the most um, I don't know I don't know about the most impactful and effective lessons. What are the that's 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 hard for me to think about off the top of my head. But I can I can tell you one that actually related back very you know sort of tangentially to magic. Um, I used to fill my classrooms with art from magic, and we used to use the them as writing prompts. So I'd, I'd print out copies of uh, you know like a a printout of uh, the art from a card like Freyalis, right? And it's, oh, this is Freyalise, the guardian of the Lanawar forests, and you need to tell a story with her as the main character. You know, maybe you can tell us how she got the eye patch, or you can tell us of, uh, you know, an adventure she had one day when she was out in the forest. You know, that sort of thing there like that. And the art, you know, whenever we had writing prompts or adventure, you know, imaginative storytelling, I just use magic art. But one lesson we did was about uh, it was about economics. It was about the stock market, and this is this was with, this was with eight year olds again. This is grade three, and what I did this this is something I did with uh, with my entire teaching team. I came up with this, and we and we did it together. It was it was enormously successful. Um, we developed a little mini stock market using magic cards, right? So I got a stack huge, like I got you know a few thousand basic lands, divided them up between the four classes, and then. Every day, we would assign a price, or I would assign a price to these uh, to these basic lands. The kids all had a bunch of play money. They all started off with, say, I don't know, like 10 euros or 20. I can't remember exactly what it was. And every day, the cards would fluctuate in value. They'd go up or down, and, you know, so there'd be a maximum of 10 or a minimum of zero. And this was to teach kids the principles of supply and demand and also to teach them about market regulation. Because what we did at the beginning, so that you would have four days of regular trading. They'd have trading sessions each day. And then on the, on the last day, you would be able to trade with kids from other classes. And, of course, other classes, different markets. You know, the swamps might be worth three in my classroom and eight in the other classroom. So the kids would come and buy swamps in my classroom, sell them in theirs, whatever. So, And then, obviously, the price, the price would go up and down. That, you know, that tied into maths, very, very basic addition and subtraction, but also making graphs, but... Uh, uh, bar charts and and um, and line charts and that sort of thing, um, but what I really enjoyed was teaching them the importance of market regulation because this is not something that you typically teach to kids at the age of eight, but it is something that they actually can appreciate because one of the most important things for children is fairness. Kids care about fairness so much more than other principles, and market regulation is all about fairness, right? An un- unregulated market is naturally an unfair, uh, an unfair environment. So to begin with, you know, in week one, in week one, you know, the first few days, there were no rules. There were no rules on what you could or couldn't do. You could trade anything for anything. You could trade currency. You could bring in other things. You could say, oh, you know, I'll trade you a euro, a fake euro, and you know, a, a, a muesli bar from my lunchbox, all that sort of stuff. 
And it was amazing to see kids pick up on different things because some of them, they played by rules that they themselves thought were fair. They they decided their own sort of ethical compass and decided, no, they weren't going to, you know, bribe or cheat or do anything else. Obviously, sorry, you couldn't steal. Like, obviously, you couldn't, like, break the quote-unquote law, but you could do whatever you wanted in terms of, uh, you know, the, the actual on the trading floor. And some of the kids, they just went for broke. My favourite one was this kid who who recognised that the best way to get ahead, right, was to pool resources. And so he created what really can only be described as an investment corporation, basically, by going to other kids and saying, hey, we can buy the market out of planes, right, if we all put our money together. And then when we sell it, we'll share out how much it is together. So basically, he went around to these other kids. And a lot of these other kids that he went to kind of weren't that into the game to begin with. And they were like, oh, sure, whatever, take my fake money. But he basically got investment from other companies or other kids, sorry, made this company and just bought out into like monopolized stocks. And then, of course, there was no one there. So he could set the price weight on the Friday and then, you know, sell them all to people who, who had a higher price and like that. It was incredible. So within the first week, we had to make anti-monopoly laws by saying that you couldn't share money, like you couldn't invest in other people, you couldn't like stake them or whatever, whatever, however you want to say it. Um, then there was other stuff about using outside currency. There was only one legal currency, which was the fake money, the toy money, that we, the play money that we were using. You couldn't bring in any other, any other sort of stuff there like that. Um, we talked about bailouts because some kids just lost all their money and stuffed it up and, and couldn't really get back into it. So we talked about bailouts and loans and what, you know, and whether they should, there should be interest charged on loans, that sort of stuff. I, they, they weren't allowed to lend their money, but at the bank, I, I, I would lend, I would lend out money to them to, to let them, you know, restart. And then they had to pay that money back with interest. And it just taught a bunch of really high-minded economic concepts to these kids, concepts that I don't really <laughs> fully understand, to be honest. It taught them uh, to these kids who, you know, I think actually got a bit of a head start when it came to uh, making financial decisions because we went through this, you know, month-long or no, no, I think it was like six weeks even, six-week process of, of, of you know, having having a little fake stock market there. And then my favourite part was at the end when the people who – uh, made the most money, the people who had sort of, quote-unquote, won the whole competition, they won prizes, which were, of course, foil basic lands. And, you know, you might be excited when you open a foil basic in, in, in a booster. You have no idea how much an eight-year-old kid, how excited they're going to be when, you, you know, you've got them sat in as the trophy in front of them all being like, oh, if you get them, you'll win this set of basic lands. They're like that. Um, so it's incredible. And if there, if there are any teachers actually who want, I think I've still got like all the lesson plans and stuff. If there are any teachers who want to run this game to teach their kids about basic, uh, you know, trading, buy, uh, uh, buying and selling, supply and demand, all of that sort of stuff, market regulation, please get in touch with me and I'll, and I'll send through the notes. I think, I think I've still got everything. You just need, you know, 500 basic lands or whatever and, and you can do it pretty easy. Anyway, sorry, that was a really long question, a really long answer. I hope, I hope that was enjoyable for people to listen to because uh, we went pretty deep on that one. But that's a good question. Thank you, Peter. I, I, I love talking about teaching. I miss it. I do, I do miss it a lot. And well, this also brings us back to, uh, this brings us back to the next question who is, uh, which is posed by a friend of mine named Duncan Tang. Uh, Duncan asks two questions, actually. The first one is, what do you want to be when you grow up? And that is obviously just a primary school teacher. I know that, you know, I, I enjoy, I, I love my job with magic. I love coverage and, you know, making content for CFB like this uh, this stupid podcast you listen to. But I recognize that, you know, it's not a forever job. And one day uh, I'll, uh, I'll want to go back to uh, the real world, I guess, if you want to look at it in that way. And, and, and you know, I'm very ready to, to, 
to re-establish my or, or re you know get back into teaching what do you say rejoin it no uh restart restart my teaching career i always loved it i do miss it a lot now and so you know if the ass falls out of my magic career i'll i'll, I'll very happily go back to uh, to teaching and so duncan I, uh, what I want to be when I grow up? A teacher. Again, Duncan's qu- second question is a magic-related question, and I'm putting it in here because he knows the answer to it already. Have you ever had your homeward path annexed in EDH? And as you very well, Duncan, you know that yes, I have, because you did it to me. Duncan has a blue-white, a blue-red, sorry, blue-red steal-all-your-stuff deck. I hate this deck because it steals all your stuff which is my stuff and not your stuff, Duncan. And so in my very creature-heavy Blink deck, I put a copy of Homeward Path, right? So he couldn't steal all my stuff because then, you know, Homeward Path, you tap it and you just gain control. Everyone gains control of their creatures. So it completely hosed his deck whenever I'd get this land. And so I played it, feeling very smug. And then Duncan's like, what's that card? Is that a Homeward Path? Oh, okay. I'll cast Annex, which is gain control of target land. And then, I mean, you know, obviously Duncan wasn't going to activate it, but then I couldn't activate the homeward path anymore, so I couldn't. Then he just stole my creatures and beat me again. So, yeah. So, yes, Duncan, I have had my homeward path annexed in EDH, as, as well you know, you jerk. Anyway, next question comes to us from Gibson Cat. What are your favorite house rules for kitchen table play? EDH, D&D, Catan, whatever. Um, so, again, this is kind of a magic-related question, but I do want to talk about some of the house rules that I have for, for D&D specifically because I really enjoy that. Um, it, uh, House rules for EDH, we have bans on stuff like Soul Ring. I, I really want it. Like, you can ignore the ban list for Commander very safely. You can change, you can chop and change, chop and screw it however you like. You know, when you're playing with friends who are all on, all on the same page, it's not paramount. It's not the be all and end all. If you want to defy the ban list in your local, in your, in your, in your little playgroup, as long as everyone's on board with it, just go ahead and do it. Because honestly, it, you're going to have so much more fun like that. So we ban Soul Ring. We ban most infinite combos. We just, we just there to have good fun. So that, you know, that's, that's the sort of approach there. But definitely have some house rules for D&D that I'm a big fan of. First one is if a die... So if you roll and the die is cocked or it falls off the table or the roll is unclear or for whatever reason they're allowed, it, it, the, the whole thing gets re-rolled, everything, right? So if they're rolling like, you know, a fireball and it's 8d6 or whatever else, they're like that, and one of the dice, one of the dice falls off the table... They have to re-roll all eight of them, which is fantastic because if they roll a bunch of fives and sixes, they're all always really salty about having to re-roll the last one. So I always, I always really enjoy doing that one. Um, the other one, which I do sometimes when, so I usually DM, uh, when, when they're getting really scratty round, getting really dumb, I like to say that the, we implement like hardcore, hardcore mode. Whereas if you say it, you do it. So, like, if you're making jokes about your character doing this or doing that, the other thing like that, you have to announce that you're saying you, – the, the, the signal that you're talking out of character is you put both of your arms in the air. But if you say, oh, my character goes and does this, and you haven't got your arms in the air, then you did it, and you have to face the consequences. And we play, we play like, permadeath. We play, you know, with all the proper stuff there like that. I've killed quite a number of my, my players' characters over the years. Sorry. Sorry, everyone, about that. But, um, yeah, hardcore mode. Sometimes we we'll just engage hardcore mode on uh, – on uh, on on D and D, one of the other things, and this is really dumb. This isn't a house rule, but this is just something I really enjoy. <laughs> this is so stupid. Um, whenever they go and meet anyone, right, and when uh, in the game, and they that character is going to lead them anywhere, the character always says, "Oh, well, walk this way," as in like follow me. But walk this way also in like walk in this silly way that I'm walking, and then I'll do a, like a silly walk, and all the all the players have to imitate the silly walk to indicate. 
that they're following this person. It's not a house rule. It's just a very dumb thing that I that I I, I find really fun to do. So you know, <laughs> I don't know how I feel like a huge nerd saying that, but it's I, I it really improves the quality of our D and D experience. Oh, walk, walk this way. Um. So yeah, I, I, we play pretty silly D and D. You know, we have characters that come back and do unrealistic things and or like there's this one character that they had an airship at one point and it, she got flown th- flung off the side of an airship and then later she was thrown so high in the air that later when they landed in a different town somewhere else like that they were there when she then landed it's just just a whole lot of really dumb stuff like that i encourage you to inject a, a healthy amount of silly nonsense into your D campaigns i mean if you like playing hardcore serious D, good on you but silly dandy is the best kind of dandy Anyway, final one. We're uh, we're getting close to the end of the podcast here. Final one of the uh, of the regular of the non magic questions before we get to the quick questions here comes to us from Joshua Worth, and um, this one was a real head scratch. This this one is actually quite a serious question. So I'm gonna I'm gonna maybe it wasn't meant as a serious question, but I'm actually gonna answer it in a, in a, in a very serious way here. Since your half ass history podcast has been going so long, do you think you'll ever be content with your content and stop half ass history, knowing you've accomplished what you set out to do in the beginning? And the reason that I'm going to answer this is, and this this is this is going to get quite real here, and I'm, this isn't a setup for a, a joke or a payoff or a punchline or anything. This is this is actually quite serious. This is something that I struggle with quite quite seriously, and maybe there are people who are listening who are going to relate to this. I find it, and I always have found it, very difficult to be satisfied with what I've got. Um, it's part grass is always greener. It's part I can always do better, and it's part. You know, having this file in a lid under my ass that isn't going to go out because I always want to move on to the next thing, and I, or not necessarily, not necessarily move on to the next thing, but I always want to be improving and, and doing better and making more and you know whatever. And I think it's mostly a good thing, to be honest. I think that this this constant, continual, unceasing, unyielding drive to do more, to do better, is on the whole. A positive. I think it does make me a, 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 a net better person. But there's a considerable downside, and I'll, I'll, the analogy I always use is one that I think a lot of you know, a lot of you nerds out there are going to be able to understand because it's, it's to do with the uh, like a Mamorpaga, like World of Warcraft, for example, or something or something like that, right? Any any video game really that that has items locked behind certain. You can play, you know, Assassin's Creed Odyssey, right? Even even does this. When I'm in 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 my life, right? When I've whenever I set myself a goal i always start thinking about the next goal that i want to achieve before i've even completed the one that i've set and that's not to say that i don't achieve the first goal it's just that by the time i do it doesn't feel as special it doesn't feel as much of an accomplishment so to use the the memorpia example let's say that i'm level 10 and i fight some mob and i kill it and i get a level 12 sword a sword that i can only equip when i'm level 12 right and I'm so excited to get to, to level 12 because I can equip, finally equip the sword. It's going to be great. Da, da, da. So I grind out level 11 and I grind out level 12. But before I've even hit level 12, right, I kill another mob that drops another sword that I get that now I can equip when I'm level 14. Ooh. So all of a sudden, this level 12 sword, not exciting. And by the time I get to level 12 and equip that sword, boring. Because I'm already looking for the, at the level 14 sword and I can't wait to equip that and fight with that. And how sick is that going to be? And then, of course, before I get to level 14 sword, I get the level 16 sword and so on and so forth. And that's very much what's happened to me just generally throughout more or less my entire life, but especially now with content creation. 
Half Our Sister has been an unmitigated success, like way more successful than I thought. I get thousands of listeners. I get people emailing me all the time. And, you know, it's it's incredible that because it's something I started off as just a little hobby, something I wanted to do, you know, to try to buck this trend. I was like, no, I'm just going to make it for me. And if no one listens to it, that, that that's fine. I just want to do it for me and my enjoyment. But now, of course... You know, I, I always wanted uh, – once it started and started sort of kicking off a little bit, I, I wanted to make it more and make it better and do more stuff. And so I added a Patreon and merch and, and you know, it's 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 tough. It's tough because it never ends and you never end up feeling satisfied with with anything that you do. And, you know – this podcast that you're listening to now and, and the videos that I put up on CFB and the content that I do, the, the coverage that I do, I'm always looking at the numbers of, of the, I mean, you know, you, everyone says you shouldn't, but it also everyone just does. Um, and always think, oh, I could be, be doing better, you know. Oh, you know, I hit 7,000 Twitter followers. Well, now I need to hit 8,000 and 9,000 and 10,000. And, you know, oh, it's good this episode got, you know, such and such many views. I need to get this many views for the next one. And it's exhausting. It really is. And so the question that Joshua asks is, will you ever be content with your content and stop us history? No. No, I'm never going to be content. I'm never going to be content with the stuff that I make. And again, part of that's a good thing because it means you never get complacent. You never give up. You're always making stuff. You're always looking to the next project and the next big thing and the next thing that, you know, but, but it's also just absolutely exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting. And I think that what has happened to me over the last couple of years since I started doing magic content full time is just I've normalized this, this, approach to work where I always need to be, you know, always need to be doing stuff, always need to be on top of something, making something, creating something, recording something, you know, streaming something now is the next thing that I want to do. And um, I don't know. I don't know if it's ever going to become unsustainable. It does become exhausting sometimes. I try to take care of myself, try to look after myself and find times to relax. But I also find that really difficult. I find it really difficult to just relax, just take time off and do nothing because I, I just feel like it's a waste of time. I, I feel like whatever I'm doing, it has to be drive me towards something you know i i don't like wasting time on reddit i prefer to you know read something or play a video game that has some kind of some kind of cultural importance um i don't like to play video games that don't have some kind of you know worthy end goal to them whether whether it's you know whether it's because they're artistic or they've got some kind of message that is provocative or makes you think like something like the outer wilds or you know, playing Magic or, or Legends of Runeterra, something that I feel like is going to be relevant to my career at some point. You know, I'd like to start streaming Runeterra. And uh, so relaxing is a really a really difficult thing. To, and I, I don't know, like, I know there are people in the world who have, like, real problems, much more real problems than this. But it is something that, you know, since you asked Joshua, it is something that I think about. I, you know, when will I ever be content with the stuff that I make? When will I ever sit back on Half House History and be like, "Oh, I've done a hundred episodes. I've done two hundred episodes. I, you know, that's enough." I don't. I don't know how I'm ever going to stop. I don't know how I'm ever going to stop doing stuff like this because it's just it's in there. It's such a such a huge part of me and the way that I spend my time being productive. You know, making things and leaving my mark on uh, on on you know putting my name to every day. That's something I'm, I really try to do. You know, every every day I try to do something that I can look back on and say, well, you know, I didn't, I didn't waste that day. I did, I did something with that day. And um, it takes its toll. It's exhausting. But at the end of the day, here I am still doing it. So obviously it, it can't be that bad. And, I, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily make me miserable, but I don't think it's ever going to make me content, to be honest. I did feel content when I was teaching. I didn't have ambition. I didn't want to go any further. I was happy being a classroom teacher and I was happy with the kids, you know, building a little classroom together, having a culture of love and joy. And that was a very different experience to what I have now. But 
you know, I don't mind the grind. I don't mind the 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 constant need to do more and do better. It's again, I think I think it makes I think it makes me a better person, even if it does, you know, cause frustration and and you know, tiredness and it can be it can be a little little a little much sometimes. But I, you know, I, that's the same with everyone. Everyone's job. Everyone's job is hard. Everyone's job has has challenges, has has difficulties, and has things that you have to work through. And my job's no different. But you know, I, I don't want to complain about it too much. And maybe this is a little maybe this is a little too self indulgent talking about this. Maybe this is a little too real. You know, it doesn't really go come into my brand of being <laughs> silly and frothy and and light. You know, very light and all, entertainment all the time. But I guess yeah. The long and short of it is, no, I don't think I'm ever going to be content with my content. I don't think I'm ever going to stop and be like, yep, that's enough. That's I've accomplished what I set out to do in the beginning. Yep, that's that. You know, wipe my hands of the whole thing. I, I I don't think that's ever going to happen. And there's part of me that looks at that and says, well, that's a real problem. But hey, that's a problem for another time because right now we're grinding for that level 16 sword and we're going to get there. Anyway, let's uh, let's get back into the you know the world of. Well, let's 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 try to make things a little lighter here with some with some quick questions. Going to burn through these ones. They're, these ones aren't going to take too long. Just uh, just the quick sort of you know one or two sentence answer questions here like this. First one comes to us from Sandy Timar, who asks: A couple of weeks back, you claimed that Taika Waititi, uh, from the famed director from Jojo Rabbit, as an Australian director, was this an intentional ploy to wind up the Kiwi listener base? Yes, it was. Of course it was. There's nothing Australians love more than winding up Kiwis. I mean, second to that, I guess it's claiming Kiwi achievements or Kiwi things for our own, you know? Pavlova, Anzac Biscuits, Russell Crowe. Sandy goes on to say, you know, along the lines of uh, Pavlova and Anzac Biscuits, you, you can have Russell Crowe. Thanks very much. Well, we'll, we'll also have um, uh, the Finn brothers, uh, I guess. Who were the other? Uh, Powderfinger, were they? No. Uh, Crowded House, I think, were Kiwis. To begin with, whatever. Uh, Sam Neill, we'll take him. Don't even worry about that. Uh, but no, absolutely. Absolutely. I'll wind up a Kiwi whenever I get the chance. And um, you can't ever, if you're a Kiwi, stop listening. I'm serious. Stop listening. Go go and, you know, have a cup of boiling mud or do whatever it is that you do in New Zealand. Um, all right. While the Kiwis aren't listening. Australians love Kiwis very, very dearly. They, we really do. It's a very much a big brother, little brother thing, but I can't, I cannot admit this publicly. Obviously, I can't ever have a Kiwi know that, you know, we, we have a great, frater- a very, a very deep fraternal bond with our trans-Tasman neighbours. Obviously, we, we love Kiwis very, very dearly, of course. But again, can't have them know that, can't say that. We've just got to bag them out, pot them as whenever we can, because they do, they do sound very, actually, no, Kiwis can start listening again now. They have the stupidest accents in the world. They really do. Like, there are some very dumb accents in there, but, but Kiwi accents are just the stupidest accents. Anyway, sorry, Sa- sorry, Sandy, for, well, no, not sorry. If, I mean, if you're a Kiwi, mate, you deserve every inch of it. Anyway, Wilson P asks, is pineapple pizza delicious or just amazing? Uh, I don't know if it's amazing. It's good. It's definitely good. Like, pizza, Pineapple is perfectly acceptable to have on pizza, and it, it, like I do enjoy Hawaiian pizza. Um, there are definitely better pizzas, though. It's it's not the be all and end all of, of pizzas. It's not the you know the the best of the best. They're like that. So pineapple pizza, good but not amazing. Um, Henry Tsang, a, a friend of mine from IRL, asks, "Why do you like plain crisps?" Well, Henry, I think you mean chips first of all, because I don't even know what a crisp is. Um, interesting thing. I don't know if you know this, by the way, dear listener. Um, Americans obviously say, say fries for the hot chips that you cook in a in a fryer, and they say chips for the chips you eat out of a packet. And in Britain, they say chips for the ones that you get out of the fryer, and they say crisps for the ones that you get out of a packet. And in Australia, we say chips and chips. Everything is chips, which is 
<laughs> a little confusing when someone's like, oh, do you want some chips? Yes. And then they bring out the wrong kind of or whatever. But um, I do like plain chips. Plain chips are nice. They're not, again, they're not the best kind of chips. Probably salt and vinegar. No, salt and pepper chips are probably better. But I do like them a lot. There's nothing wrong with plain chips. They're, you know, I don't, I think you know, when you're a kid, plain chips were boring. But like as an adult, I don't know, like chicken chips, cheese and onion. I don't know. I'm, I'm just not into any of these flavors. I, I, plain chips are, plain chips are absolutely fine. You, you know why a plain, you know why the plain chips, you can never go wrong with plain chips. You know exactly what you're going to get. Henry's salty about this. Do you know why? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to just call Henry out on this one. So I went around to his place. A couple of weeks ago, we went around there to just muck around and play some games and whatever else they like that. And we went to the supermarket and bought a bunch of uh, bought a bunch of food. And obviously, you know, when you like, I bought way more than I actually was ever going to eat. But whenever you go to someone's house and take snacks and drinks and whatever else, whenever you leave, obviously you just leave them at the person's house because you're not going to cart, you know, half a bottle of diet coke and a, and a bag of chips back home. So I left the stuff that I'd bought at his place. And he was obviously thrilled about this because he knew that he could get up in the morning and, you know, have a, have a bit of a snack uh, on, on, on some of the stuff that had been left behind. And then he got cross with me because what I left behind was plain chips. And he was like, you know, I don't want this. I don't want this garbage left in my house. It's like, mate, they're free. You're getting free leftovers from me. Don't complain. Beggars can be choose, apparently, according to Henry Tsang. Anyway, these are not quick answers. I've got I've to pick up the pace here. Next question comes from Hessian Hunter, who asks, what are your favorite sub-pop artists? Um, uh, some of you will, will know that, you know, I, I, of course, always wear my, my, my sub-pop hat. Uh, I wear it because I'm balding and I don't like showing that off. But uh, always wear my little sub-pop hat. I uh, bought it in uh, in Seattle. And I've got a uh, I've got a, an old daggy one that I bought years ago. And I've got a nice, clean, fresh one that I wear to, you know, fancy occasions, weddings and funerals and what the like, that, that sort of thing. Um, and so sub-pop is a record label. Uh, and my favorite sub-pop artists, uh, my favorite is definitely the, the Postal Service. That's not close. Uh, if you haven't listened to the Postal Service, do yourself a favor. Their album, Give Up, is one of the best albums that is, it's just, it's just, it's one of my absolute all-time favorite albums. I absolutely love it. Um, but apart from them, probably a big fan of Iron and Wine. I like Fleet Foxes, uh, Shearwater, uh, the, the main, the lead singer from Ockerville River, Will, Someone? I can't remember his last name. Will Chef? Will? What was his name? I don't know. Anyway, the main singer from Ockerville River, he used to be in Shearwater. That's what got me into Shearwater. Shearwater are fantastic. Go and listen to them as well. Uh, but yeah, what I say? Fleet Foxes, Iron and Wine. I mean, other stuff like, I like, I mean, who doesn't like Modest Mouse? The Shins, obviously, also very good. Sort of broad appeal there. Uh, Flight of the Concords, of course, those, uh, those Kiwis, they're also on, they're also, they release stuff via Sub Pop. But definitely the Postal Service. If there's one band you go and listen to from Sub Pop, go and listen to the Postal Service. It's, um, it's Death Cab for Cutie frontman, uh, Ben Gibbard and, uh, a guy called Jimmy Tamborello, who usually releases music under the name of Dintel. It's more like electronica type stuff. And, uh, it's just so, so good. The music is, it's heartrending. It's so, so, so good. And, uh, yeah, go and listen, go and listen to the Postal Service. Anyway, next question comes from Anna and Anna asks, do you have or do you want to have any pets? And the answer to that is, uh, the, the answer to the first half is, is no. And the second half, it's yes. I absolutely love cats. They are the superior animal, of course. Anyone who is telling you that dogs are better clearly just hasn't enjoyed what a cat has to offer. They're not smelly. They, they'll crap in a little box for you and, uh, and, you know, they, I mean, yeah, they'll tear up your furniture, but that's just the price of doing business. At least they don't smell like dog and slobber all over you. I mean, cats, cats are clearly the superior animal. I used to have a little cat back in Australia, little assassin. He was a Burman. And um, he's very cute. He was, oh, man, I, I just absolutely love that cat so much. He was so adorable. He was so cute. And he was so tolerant. I mean, I used to I used to wear him like a scarf. 
around my shoulders. He was so he just did not he did not care. He was so chilled out. He was so lovely, and I, I miss him so so much. He was hit by a car. And it was very very sad. Poor little assassin. And um, but he was this beautiful Berman, um, yeah, long white fur, little little white toes, and these black gloves there, and beautiful blue eyes. And I do miss him very much. I'd love to have another cat, but just with my travel schedule, I really don't think it'd be fair. I'm going to events every couple of weeks, every couple of months, and I don't I don't think it'd be fair to have a cat that you know I basically would have to just leave behind by itself, or you know get people in to look, look after that sort of stuff because I'm off you know events here, here there, and everywhere. So. I'd love to have another animal, but I, I, yeah, I just, I don't think it'd be fair on the on the animal to, you know, to have it when I have the schedule I do. So yeah, that's the answer to that. But cats, superior animal. I'd love to have a little pet again, a little, little pet cat. Anyway, uh, second last question comes to us from Dana S. This one's going to be a very quick one. Favorite horror movie? None. I hate horror films. I don't understand why anyone likes them. Oh, I'm going to sit in a dark room and deliberately scare myself. No, thank you. Horror films. I just do. I just. Do not get horror films. I've never enjoyed... I don't think I've ever watched a horror film from start to... No, that's not That's not true. Megan, my girlfriend, the first film we ever watched was this dumb horror film about these women who went spelunking. They went into a cave and they got, like, eaten or something. But Sorry, I've spoiled the whole thing. It's a really bad film. I can't remember what it's called. It's so bad. Um, and I just didn't enjoy it. I'm like, this is scary and I don't like it. I don't want to... Say, like, I'm Horror films... Ugh, I, I just don't understand the genre. If you're into it, that's fine. There's no judgment here. Maybe a little bit of judgment, but I just don't understand the genre. I don't enjoy horror films. They're just bleh, no, no thanks, no thanks. And the final question comes to us from another long-term Riley, uh, Riley superfan here. It comes to us from Daniel Starr, who asks, "What have I got in my pocket? How can I know this? How can I know what you've got in your nasty little pocketses? Uh, Hanses, knife, string, or nothing?" I've got no idea. Anyway, The Hobbit is my favourite book, I think, of all time. It's what kicked off my love of fantasy. So, uh, Daniel, with the, with the sick flex, knowing uh, how much I, uh, you know, I love my uh, Tolkien fantasy literature. Anyway, that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. I've actually enjoyed this a lot. I mean, I, you know, if there are two things I like, it's the sound of my own voice and also talking about myself. So this was a double whammy. Fantastic. Um, but thank you. In all seriousness, thank you to all the people who, who sent in questions. Uh, I think I got to all of them. Uh, I got to all the ones I could see that uh, re- responded to the tweet that I sent out anyway. Um, we'll be back next week with more regular Scrimey River. Hopefully Dennis will be... Uh, uh, you're back from his trip across the states and ready to uh, ready to join me again uh, for another episode. So um, yeah, I hope I hope this wasn't too much of a letdown not having him on the show. I know Dennis fans will be devastated to have to put up with it. You know, but then again, if you're still here listening after an hour of me talking about all sorts of nonsense there like this, and you are hating it, you've really got no one to blame but yourself, to be honest. So um, anyway. But uh, a special thank you, of course, goes to Channel Fireball for. Oh wait, no, we got to do Shahara's Abney River, don't we? What have I been playing? I'll tell you what, I'm not, I haven't been playing, but I'm bloody looking forward to this. Animal Crossing. Megan and I have sat down. We've designed, like, the island that we're going to we're gonna sort of build because you can terraform in this new one. Oh, my goodness. You haven't played them. Oh, my God. I love Animal Crossing. So um, uh, we're going to have, like, a little beachfront promenade with all the shops, and we're going to make a little village probably with a little river running through it. They're like that. We're each going to have a little house on either corner. I'm going to set up, like, a stargazing area. She wants to have an orchard with all the different fruits. Um, I want to put the museum on, like, an island with kind of, like, a little moat around it. Um and what else are we going to do? Oh, I want to have like a, a French style garden, very neat and orderly with like paths and fountains and all that sort of stuff there like that. So that's going to be, that's going to be good. Um, and I'm really looking forward to, because Animal Crossing, I mean, it's not a whole lot of stuff happens in the older games. It's just kind of, you know, going around, you collect your fossils, that sort of stuff. There's a bit of a grind in this one, which I enjoy. Not quite XP, but like you get to craft your own materials and craft, craft like tools and stuff there like that. So I'm looking forward to that. 
the game's just so chilled out, man. It's just so it's really nice to just you know play it and relax and and have a good time. If you're not a fan of Animal Crossing, I can understand why. But uh, if you want to give it a go, if you've got a Switch, I would recommend picking it up because it is just one of the. It's you know we talk, we talked about me not being able to relax. Playing Animal Crossing is is a really really nice way to just kind of tune out. And there's a there's a great little quote that's going around about going around. I think it's the top uh, the top post on the Animal Crossing subreddit, and it says. The reason Animal Crossing is so wildly successful is because it fulfills any, every millennial's fantasy of owning property and having friends, <laughs> which I think is, is probably a little cuts a little too close to the bone there. Anyway, um, look, very much looking forward to uh, to Animal Crossing. So that's the Shaharazadmi River for the. I don't know what Dennis's been up to. He's I think he's he, I think he's I think he's going to PAX, so he'll have some video game uh, news to to share with us next week. I imagine. Anyway. That is that. Thank you to Channel Fireball for sponsoring this stupid podcast. And thank you to Joachim Karat, of course, for the music we use in it. Go and check him out. Go and listen to his new album. It's so good. He's so good. Everything's so good. You know what? You're so good. Thanks for hanging out with me on, on uh, Scrimey River this week. All the scryhards out there, it's been great to have your company. And I'll be back with Dennis next week. Until then, take care of yourselves. Send in those questions. And I'll see you next time. <laughs>